Welcome to the Right to the Streets edition of the GM Moving podcast. Join the conversation about what makes our streets, parks and public spaces joyful, welcoming places for people to be and to be active. Join me, Eve Holt, Strategic Leader at Greater Sport, on the journey around the streets as we explore people's freedom to move about without fear. In each episode, we hear about the roles we can all play to make where we live, work and play places where all women and girls feel they belong and are invited to be active. We gather stories, experiences and ideas as we speak to strategic leaders, decision makers and lots of local people who are creating the conditions in place for everyday moving and active lives for all. This episode of the Right to the Streets podcast series focuses on public space design, including small neighbourhood changes we could all contribute to, like streets planting and keeping hedges trimmed. Getting the basics right, like good street lighting, clear, smooth pavements and well-placed and timed pelican crossings, and also the larger, longer-term redevelopment plans. We talk about the need to have conscious conversations about who we're prioritising in space, the tensions to be navigated and how we can adopt more feminist design principles and language and develop a more representative workforce, working alongside communities, recognising that they are bursting with creativity, love, ideas and learning and sometimes we just need to get out of the way, trusting them as guardians of place. You'll hear what it's like for people to navigate the streets as a wheelchair user. I'm really missing out because I live looking over the canal as well, one of the beautiful canals that we have in this region, and I can't get down to it. So I just look at it. And how designing in accessibility from the start creates a blueprint for further development. This isn't a a never-ending journey. This is very much, once we know the best dimensions for a drop curb, that's it. We know the best dimensions for a drop curb. It doesn't go on forever. We don't have to keep redesigning that. Then you'll come with me to North Trafford to find out what's in store for new public design around that area as part of Trafford Council Civic Quarter Action Plan. Well, they've called it a ceremonial route, so it'll link the cricket ground to Old Trafford. What kind of ceremonies and processions will be, I don't know, <laughs> in the future. Hopefully lots. But first with Old Trafford Cricket Ground to chat about the fundamentals we need to consider when creating public spaces where we all feel we belong. We're joined by an expert in public space design. I'm Ellie Cosgrave and I'm the director of Publica's Community Interest Company. And also with us is a voice you've just heard. It's Trafford Council's Heritage Development Officer. I'm Elizabeth Lewis. I'm the Heritage and Urban Design Manager at Traffic Council, based in the planning team. You'll hear more from Elizabeth later on in the episode too. Old Trafford Cricket Ground is home to Lancashire Cricket Club, which at the moment is undergoing lots of new development, including a hotel extension, a new stand and museum, which will explain the odd bang and clang you'll hear during this chat. We sat in the boardroom overlooking the beautiful green pitch with the slight buzz of the aircon in the background. I start by asking Ellie, why do safer streets matter to her, both in her professional role and personally? Oh, safer streets matters to me because I am a city girl and I grew up in cities and I love the freedom that a city offers me. As a kid, that involved going to 
cinema with my mates. It was my own freedom to get around. And that was a place where I could express myself and become who I am. This really happened for me on the streets. But it's, I guess, also a place where I have understood the vulnerability that comes with presenting as female in public space. The streets are a space where I've learnt how I'm not safe. And I guess I've dedicated my career to that dualism (laughs) and that wanting these spaces to be a space where we can all become who we are and tackling some of those really harmful barriers of a feeling that we don't belong and how that can affect who we are. So go on then, Ali, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in your work to make our street spaces that are more joyful, are more free, are safer for women and girls. Yeah, so the first thing that I guess I'm doing is trying to build an understanding within the built environment community about what it means to build safety build a sense of well-being and build a sense of belonging into our design processes. And there's a whole lot of feminist theory that I've enjoyed uh, digging into, but turns out not everyone loves doing that. <laughs> um, so m- what part of it is about a translation role into our sector, about what does it actually mean to have a, des- a spatial design that includes feminist principles? The second area of our work is to think about how do we go beyond the simple basic designs to use spatial planning and use urban design to imagine a world and a future where we do truly all belong and that we can all get really excited about that maybe is not linked to individual project constraints of any given moment, but that really helps take us out of what we think is possible and into a realm of imagination so that we can have a goal, <laughs> so that we can be, be transported. And then I guess the final aspect of my work is bringing that down into real projects on the ground. So we've written some design guidelines for the Mayor of London, and we're now testing that out on 10 projects across the capital to see what are the barriers and the constraints to delivering it, but what is the difference that can be actually made. We have these demonstrator projects and we've had the pleasure of having you involved in Right to Streets from the very beginning. In fact, before the beginning, because it was the work that you did and conversations we had that helped form actually our initial bid um, and the model that we now are, are sticking to really and has proved really valuable. And then the name. So Right to the Streets emerged. And obviously one of the joys of that is that then relates back to this idea of Right to the City. So you could tell us a little bit about Right to the City. The right to the city is an incredibly powerful and important concept. We know what human rights are. We know that we have a kind of a right to education, a right to access to food, to shelter. What does it mean when we translate that right into the right to the city? The right to the city is a collective right to change ourselves by changing the city. We know in our own homes We change our experience once we get new furniture, once we paint it that color we've always wanted to paint. That right extends to the city. We know that how we get to work or what work we do or the type of education that we have or who we meet day to day is absolutely wrapped up in the shape of our public infrastructure, in our access to green space, in to the types of transport that's available to us. So we can and we should be part of making those decisions that ultimately shape our lives and our communities. 
And so the rights of the city is just about participation. So Elizabeth, we're sat here obviously in Trafford. Part of your role is to help think about then how we, you know, design and change and lead on regeneration in this part of Trafford. But it'd be great to hear in terms of your kind of experience, you know, what, what does this mean? What does good design look like? How would we go about this process of ensuring that we have that right to the street, that right to the city that we've just heard about? So I'm involved with the Trafford Design Code, which is a Pathfinder project, um, which has been funded by the government for 12 months. And so we are looking at delivering a design code for local development to ensure that not just buildings, but open space, public realm is inclusive and uh, accessible and attractive spaces, really, for everyone to enjoy. So the code will hopefully deliver that. Um, It's a pioneering project, really. We're one of uh, only a few boroughs in the country which are doing a borough-wide design code. So it's it's very new um, and we're hopefully delivering that government policy and that direction of travel uh, on the ground locally. And it feels really exciting because one, we get to be involved in helping think about what that looks like and shaping that pathfinder and then knowing the influence that that can have as others then look to what you've done and the work in Trafford to inform what they do. I guess thinking about the design code for people listening, is there anything specific? Like what what goes in a design code? What are the things that, you know, are really going to anchor some of the key, I guess, principles? I mean, what we want to deliver are streets and public realm. It's not just for people to get from A to B. It's not just for transport, but it's for people to enjoy and to have fun and to be invigorating and an exciting environment. And and not just streets themselves as well, but also that green space and open space and, and hoping that people will linger there, but will create att- attractive environments. I think quite often um, what we experience in Trafford are, are developments which potentially could have a negative impact on how people experience the world around them. So through the code, we want to try and ensure that that development well, improves on that and just creates that cohesion, really. Talk us through the time process. So when when will the code be finished? What's the process for that? What happens after that? What would you like to see? What difference would you like to see that make? So it's a 12-month project um, and we are due to have a draft of the code by the end of May. Um, And then it will hopefully be adopted in September time, but it will go out to public consultation. And then it's not just that then the code is finished. We will adapt and change that. And there are probably things that we haven't necessarily addressed. It's a really big project to deliver in a very short time frame. Um, So it will be ongoing. It's going to be part of a digital platform and so that we can then change and adapt that to sort of needs really and development that comes forward in the future things like natural surveillance would be really important with development so thinking about some of the points that that you raised Ali that it's not just about lighting and CCTV having natural surveillance is a way that street spaces can remain active uh, and people observing things making sure that windows face the street rather than having blank elevations sort of increasing both the, the visual contribution with landscaping and uh, creating spaces where people can sit and spend time and dwell is really important as well. And you can do that through through public realm, through uh, street furniture, through wayfinding, all, all those aspects. I'm picturing Ellie. So I'm picturing you describing sort of painting, you know, we paint the walls in your room. I think how many times over my life so far I've gone, oh, I just want to change the positioning of something because it, it does impact on, on how we feel. It's a lot harder when it comes to public space that is used 
by lots of people and you can't unfortunately just pick up a tin of paint and a paintbrush and have the freedom to change things. Of course, there are tensions. Of course, we cannot design a space that feels absolutely safe for everybody, um, that meets everybody's multiple needs that they might have of public space. At the moment, we are not making our assumptions clear about who this space is for. And so what we end up doing is, without too much thinking, narrow the possibilities for that space. What I hope to do and what I suggest that we do is have a really conscious conversation about who are we prioritizing in public space? Is it children? Is it people with physical disabilities? And what does focusing on those needs offer us to a new possibility for space? So at the moment, we're kind of narrowly focused on people who are probably accessing paid daytime labor market, who are probably physically able and who are quite transient in public space. We're kind of getting people through it. And so just having a gendered conversation or a conversation with specific lenses on it enables us to open out the possibilities. That's one thing. And the second is around how easy is it for to really to change these spaces? And of course, there are long-term planning, big infrastructure projects that we need to shift in a new direction. We need more accessible green spaces. We need low carbon transport options that are not polluting. We need active spaces. And that will maybe our streetscapes needs to change entirely. There's also an opportunity to be a bit more tactical and be a bit more immediate and say, actually, you know what? Maybe I personally can't pick up a paintbrush, but we as a group could. <laughs> we as a local authority could. We can put in temporary planting that can be seating and we can experiment and we can see what happens. And we find when we have these kind of tactical urbanism projects that maybe are plant pots that create segregated cycle lanes uh, that add a bit of joy. We come to expect it and we come to understand how it can be transformative rather than making a kind of budgetary case. When we feel it in our bodies, when we feel it in the community, we get it. So how, you know, to that point of all these different conflicts of how we use a space, how we perceive things, how do we wrestle with all of that? The first thing is that we wrestle with it. We contend with it. We get involved and we have those conversations. We need to not impose our sort of one view about what a safe, vibrant community looks like. For some people, some people do need car access? How do we include that in the conversation so that it doesn't become divisive and it doesn't become my needs against your needs? And, and this comes back to the point, there's no such thing as a safe city. There's no such thing as a kind of perfect city. A city is perfect when we're engaging in it, when we're in it. And I guess the baseline of that is trust, care, compassion, trust that government has my interests in mind and is listening to what I say, as well as trust from people with more kind of traditional authority in the communities who know about what their needs are, who know where the difficulties are, where the tension points are, and that there's a beautiful collaboration that's possible. That's not to say it's easy. Like, we don't solve this with plant pots. We solve it by talking to each other. We're picking up this collective paintbrush. I mean, who, whose job is it? When we think about the design of our places, who, whose business is that? Who does that fall to? 
I think it's a group of people rather than just one authority. So we, as the local authority, can contribute through policy and helping to shape those those places and with the with the built environment as well. The Gorse Hill project, the amazing alleys, is, was yeah. just a really great local symbol of how something so simple as flowers and seating could create uh, and change a space. Uh, it, was, it was brilliant, a brilliant project. And that's the thing, we can learn lots from what goes on under our own noses. And that's a great example. So the gorgeous Gorse Hill kind of stuff, you know, again, finding those small pockets of spaces. You know, one of them's on a big roundabout, isn't it? And then they've created this little gorgeous corner of growing and greenery and seating. Yeah, I mean, they were really negative spaces, as you tend to get at the backs of, of terraces. And, you know, children play down there now. It's, it's brilliant. And that was an example of people, local residents going, yeah. this place is gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> And absolutely. we're going to show you it's gorgeous. And, and that from, from a local level, you know, it didn't need us as a local authority to intervene. It didn't need other organisations to, to help with that, really. It was a community project, so... And sometimes it's about others getting out of the way rather than needing to do anything. Yes, and sometimes, yeah, recognising that as a local authority as well is important. Yeah, I think it's it's super key to understand that that our communities and our cities are bursting with creativity, with community, love, with ideas, and it is often about getting out of the way, 100%. On the other realm and the other scale is understanding the ways in which a local authorities or a city authorities vision for a long-term plan about how, where we are what the trajectory is that can then enable people to get out of the way for local communities who are aligned with that vision is really important so the uh, example I often use is Vienna where since 1990 they've had an office within the city for gender mainstreaming meaning taking ideas around gender inclusion and putting it into city policy across uh, the city authority. And that long-term vision, so this started in 1990, that's like 33 years ago, is really clear how that's impacted um, across a variety of projects. Because in urban development terms, sometimes you do need that long-term view. One example is of many things that they've been doing is around their public parks program, where they collected data gender disaggregated data about who was using the park, what time of day, what ages. They found that up until about the age of eight years old, girls and boys were using the park at relatively similar numbers. After the age of eight, it tended to be just boys using the space. And their understanding, their meaning making from that was that where space has to be socially negotiated, meaning if you just have a field, then the kind of traditional boys' activities will win out. So the football, the basketball, the bigger space-taking activities will win, and therefore kind of traditionally girls' activities will be marginalized and the space will not be there. So their solution to that was to create different or zoned areas within parks for different types of activity so that the space itself negotiated that use of space so there would be football pitches and there would be benches for talking and or or more playful types of activities and they found with that intervention so with a gender lens and with gender disaggregated data after age eight girls and boys were using the park at similar rates again that took a long-term vision it took a willingness to collect data and really to understand what was going on and then a financed 
set of work and projects to bring that to life. Of course, we don't want to then just create parks that have girls' activities and boys' activities. We want to go beyond that. We want to challenge that. So what you need to be able to do there is to manage and maintain spaces and create social programs that support, for example, girls accessing football and boys accessing reading and talking. That might be clubs that are kind of nurture and support that. So you really have to think the, across the ways in which long-term strategic policy vision and action, data-led design and community programs work together to enable long-term change that we want to see. Uh, so understanding that your gender presentation affects the way in which you experience space and that we need to design for those multiple types of experience. The thing that comes up to me is public art of all kinds, renaming streets, plaques that tell the history of women in an area to make visible the diverse people that have shaped uh, our space already. And to, you know, a sense of belonging for me is about an internal question is, is this space for someone, for someone like me? And maybe of and for someone like me. And if I can see in murals and in plaques that someone like me is represented, then it helps me answer yes to that question. And so I think we need to not undermine the power of that type of imagery. I was in a park with my nephew it was on the site of an old school and there was a tuck shop that used to be there. And there was an, uh, an installation, sculptural installation, which was the footprint of the tuck shop that used to be there. And in it, a sculpture of a woman. And the plaque said, this is to represent all of the women who ran the tuck shop and who used to give a penny to kids on their birthday to buy sweets. And to me, that story of our history and the and valuing the role of women in creating community and society is, was really profound and important and moving because we're used to memorializing war and the type of leadership that was actually quite destructive in, on, for our planet and history. And so if we can change the kinds of things that we esteem and represent, it's huge. And there's so much, I mean, just that example is a beautiful example again, isn't it, of what we, what we value and different gendered perspectives on leadership there, on, on contributions towards a city, towards a place. And I guess we see that play out as you think about public art and heritage. One of the examples, I remember when um, commissioning for the Emily and Pankhurst statue in Manchester, which was to be only the second statue of a woman in Manchester which seems phenomenal for a city that's been a trailblazer in in women's rights is there was um, a real tension in the conversation because it became about a statue of one woman and lots of women um, were saying well that isn't representative because women's cause has always been on the back of collective effort so why have we got a statue of one person and their argument was immediately that already was wasn't a feminist perspective. Um, it was never Emmeline on her own that brought about the right to the vote. Um, she was an important leader within a collective effort and collective action. So I guess it was just one of these many examples that it, it's not necessarily even just enough to 
actually go, okay, we can now have more statues of women or more murals of women. It's also recognised there's probably going to be big differences in, in how they're portrayed and in who's portrayed in their diversity. Yeah, it is, because also it's almost like a, a snapshot in time as well that you're showing in a statue or a, an action or a piece of art that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. Uh, and you're seeing it through that lens at that time as well, aren't you? So, yes, it's, yeah, it, it is, it's, it's a, real, a really difficult thing to kind of portray. And that's always the, the tension with heritage, definitely. But this is the other thing that I think when we're taking feminist action so often we're fighting for the scraps of what's left over for, okay, we've got one statue that has to do the whole work of all of our storytelling and it will never get it right. And so what we need is to be able to have a hundred statues or, or possibilities so that we don't have to fight over this, this one. So it needs to be part of everything that we do. We have to acknowledge that there are going to be multiple ways and perspectives and tensions and disagreements. That's part of the process of taking action and let's not narrow it down to to kind of so myopic or so so restricted that all we've got is this if we can create a space where we can create change in all arenas of our lives it if we get it wrong one in one statue there's another statue that we're going to be building next week as well so you both talked a bit to the point that lots of people have a role in the design of our public sphere public spaces streets what's the invitation how can we invite more people to play a role because often people don't have a sense of any power or agency around shaping even their streets what can we do differently that opens up that invite the way i think about it is a willingness to experiment in participation So the way in which we do participation for design processes at the moment is often very much an afterthought. It's checking option A or option B. And there's very little difference between option A or option B, but you need to feel like you've had a choice or input. I want to see the co-design at the beginning of projects where school children genuinely get to design their school street the school children are the experts in what they need in terms of accessing their school environment making sure that the ways in which we allow people to participate is not in our language but in theirs we don't know all of the best ways to do that now and so we need to take a risk and we need to spend some time learning from communities about how they would think and how they would do various things so for example we've been working in Wandsworth southwest London on their nighttime strategy and we worked with local community members to record the sounds of their nighttime what does the nighttime sound like what does your nighttime sound like we can think about it in a different way and we use that as a basis for conversation a basis for meaning rather than saying what do you want to put in the nighttime strategy which what does that mean This was one of the most amazing projects that I've been involved in because it showed to me the reality of the idea of the right to the city in its basic form. One of the people that we worked with, it was a mother and daughter who had experienced what they assumed as racial hate crime in their own area just that summer. And the police had done nothing, but there was a sustained attack on their home. And... As a result, the daughter didn't want to go out at nighttime. 
the mother described through participating in this project, working with the council to explain their experience of nighttime, that that process of engagement itself told them that they're not alone and made them feel more connected to their community. And she describes watching her daughter wanting, saying, mommy, 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 can I go out after dark to record the sounds for this project we're participating in? It shows me and it shows us that participation itself is the end goal. Being able to have a right to say how I feel, describe my experience, is an output in itself. It's an added benefit if we can put that into the nighttime strategy. We can kind of say, okay, police, what went on there? <laughs> you know, but it's an end goal in itself. Participating is the magical thing. And it transforms our experience, even when the city itself hasn't changed. That's taken me to the story of the owl that was afraid of the dark. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, I haven't thought about that for a while since my kids are probably young. But that sense of, so we can't change the fact that, you know, the sun will set every day and we'll have dark. And we've heard it repeatedly through this project so far, how many women and girls and others feel that their places change and take on a different character and are not for them once after dark. And there's things that are beyond our control, but that was such a beautiful story and example of how you can shift your experience and perception of what you're hearing and what you're seeing and make that celebratory instead um, so that we experience it differently, we own it, we belong. And then people gather and, you know, another key learning pillar I guess of this project so far as has been that piece about community how the thing that makes the biggest difference is people feeling that they are part of a community and that makes them feel safe so a place may not have otherwise changed except if you gather and you feel community then it feels like a place that you are welcome are safe and belong through participation and contributing to that that I mean we have done quite a lot of community engagement but again that's been a learning process for us because it's, it's such a, a short time frame for the project and that we've had various workshops but one of the the workshops that we did was was in a school uh, and some of the things that the children said as part of that project were, were amazing you know they wanted houses on stilts in the keys and uh, one child wanted to make sure that all houses could see a sunset which is just such a simple concept isn't it but seeing it through those different eyes but as part of the, the planning process there's there, there is that community engagement there is that consultation but sometimes it's limited uh, and sometimes as officers we feel like we're not really getting that message across or we're not getting really the, the, the views and the voices of the people who, who who need to be heard through that process. That comes back as well to what I was saying at the beginning around educating our sector and learning within the sector about what is possible with a different type of engagement because so often it becomes a kind of statutory tick box People uh, maybe don't want it to be. Maybe they want it to be me more meaningful in their projects and they understand that development can be a much more social good than they're currently able to roll out in their own projects. So there is a piece around this, again, back to experimentation, what is possible to change through a co-design process and starting to let go of some of the fears that come with how difficult community engagement can be, especially when you've never done it before. So 
lots of funding for experiments. <laughs> oh, be great. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I mean, you've, you've touched, we've, yeah, there was a mention of, of risk before, of fear, of tightly constrained processes that limit, you know, how much choice and flexibility. So there's all these things that exist, like the confines on what, what we can do and how people participate in, um, in shaping place. If we were to throw them all out, and if you were to say, what could be possible? Have you got a sense of what you would like it to look like if all of that disappeared tomorrow? Yeah, I suppose, the, I mean, the planning system's there to kind of balance needs, really. So it's not just considering one set of needs. You have to consider lots of different users uh, of, of those spaces. So, yeah, if, if there's none of those constraints, you, you're not, you might just favour one area of the community over another and that would be my fear really in doing that so you you do need some of those constraints I think to make sure that everyone has a voice as much as you possibly can but I think as you said earlier Ellie that it's not always possible to to get everything right in in one go so I think it's making sure that you acknowledge where things have gone wrong and that, that things can change and that that process can can change and evolve with it as well yeah, I mean, one of the things for, for the design code is, is leading with landscape. And that's something that we're really passionate about, is, is bringing landscape forward in the borough, making sure that there are hedges and trees and just uh, even little sort of pockets of landscape. It's really important to create a better environment for everyone. Building on that point, I might suggest that we do focus on one user group, pick a user group, maybe the most marginalised group that you can imagine and see what comes out when you design with those needs in mind. Because I think it's a yes and kind of improvisation mindset that there may well be a whole realm of possibilities that, that we can't even imagine. It's why I would, my, my fantasy is much, is not at all about delivery. Maybe it would look exactly the same, <laughs> but it would be of us and that would transform our experience of it because at the moment I think we're just squishing it out with all of our requirements that means that we're just we've got like cookie cutter of the space that that's being replicated globally I think most cities are starting to look very similar yeah I think that's a good point actually that you get by trying to achieve too much you're just becoming with a kind of generic template almost aren't you for some public space. This discussion highlights yet again that we all have a role to play to create a sense of belonging in our communities and streets and the difference it makes when people in their diversity are involved in the design planning and guardianship of places. We need to design for diversity, accessibility, inclusion, heritage, culture, belonging, social interaction, movement, freedom and joy. We'll hear more from Elizabeth a little bit later when she takes on a little tour of some outside areas around the cricket ground. They're up for redevelopment soon as part of the council's Civic Quarter Action Plan. So you've heard from experts about the bigger picture, but what is it actually like to experience the streets firsthand? And especially when the paths and places we use haven't been designed with accessibility in mind. I'm now joined online by a resident of North Trafford, an advocate for accessibility. I'm Sarah Brown-Fraser. I'm the External Affairs Manager for Activity Alliance, which is a national charity and leading voice for disabled people in sport and activity. I also live in Stratford in Manchester. I was born in Liverpool, but I moved to Manchester about 15 years ago. I'm a wheelchair user as well. 
and the founder of a Greater Manchester not-for-profit who supports active and healthy lives for disabled people. My name is Ben Andrews. I'm managing director of a community interest company, Beyond Empower, and we help make mainstream provision in leisure and activity more accessible for disabled people. I'm not from Trafford. I'm over in Salford, just across the canal from Sarah, uh, and I'm registered blind, so a real keen interest in access and inclusion. I start by asking Sarah what safer, more welcoming and joyful streets look like to her. I think firstly, it's about a place I know I can go where I don't feel excluded, where I don't feel an afterthought, where I don't feel like, oh, if only they'd just done that. A place where I can be me and feel like me without having to think about your daily lives and a place where I feel safe and supported or that there is somewhere to go if I don't. And certainly I'm just not feeling like I'm left to everybody else to support me, but a place where I can go and think and just be me. So in your experience, Sarah, as as a woman and a wheelchair user who lives in the local area of North Trafford, anything in particular that you would say that adds to the mix because of your gender? I think it's an important point what you just raised as well, but the intersectionality of women and girls, we often forget. I'm a woman first before I'm disabled, for example. So yes, when I think I'm thinking about safety and if I am alone, I mean, I'm safe, have I got access to phones or a, you know somebody that can support me if I'm in trouble? I'd like to think as a woman that I'd have a place to go where it feels safe. There's somebody to go to if I need help. And I'm not alone. Yeah, I think it varies from person to person. I think some of the things, whether people are disabled or not, are just standard good practice and make everyone feel a bit safer. So, for example, good lighting. So my mum was blind. My mum was registered blind and dull lighting for her as a, as, a, as a woman who was registered blind. Similar condition to me is was a bit more progressed. I think it's just an extra level of anxiety because if you are in a position where you do need to get away quite quickly, you know, as vulnerable as any woman would be in that position, I think it just adds an extra element of, I don't know, if I do try and get away, what am I going to run into? Is it going to be something I'm going to bang into? Is it something I'm going to be uh, falling over? So I think those are the additional elements that in access and the additional uncertainty can add to disabled people. For me, I rely on the car so much because I reckon I could do some really quick routes my office is five minutes down the road for example but the pavement just doesn't warrant for me to arrive safely at work I'm really missing out because I live looking over the canal as well one of the beautiful canals that we have in this region and I can't get down to it so I just look at it I would definitely have a better way of life a better way of living if things were improved in terms of access for pavements especially and I'm probably not doing all the activity I could do. I think if, if a service works for disabled people, then they will travel the extra distance to go to that service rather than a closer one. If the local leisure centre isn't accessible, but you've got one in another borough that is, then disabled people will, if, if they can, travel that bit further to get there. So that then lengthens the amount of time it takes to get to the services. So it's not that the services don't exist in that place. It's just that they're inaccessible in that place. Or we actually would pay more to do other things that are just more accessible uh, and just a greater experience. So, you know, for example, if we wanted to go to a park, I know people that would travel out of the area to get to a more accessible playground, for example, or, you know, a a more accessible activity centre. So 
yeah, I do think we go where the places are that we know about and we've heard about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and even even in there, there's a there's sort of an element of privilege in that you know some people can travel further distances to access those services, but for a lot of disabled people living in poverty, they might not have access to transport. They might be dependent on those services and unable to access them and not able to access anywhere outside of their area. So it's really important we're getting the local services right. So we obviously want to take a whole life course approach to thinking about our streets and public spaces and things like, yeah, the joy of the journey, play on the way. These things are really important. It's not just about how long it takes you to get there. It's the social element that is key for so many of us and how spaces help us to connect to each other, to ourselves, to our local place, to sense of identity. And obviously that looks different. It looks different for a whole host of reasons, but it looks different over our life course. So in terms of kind of play and disabled children and young people, you know, it'd be great to hear any kind of examples of what, what good looks like. Yeah, I think when it comes to accessible play, you know, we know that disabled children are more likely to be excluded from play. And we know play is vital for development uh, into adulthood. And when it comes to accessible playgrounds, at least from, from my learning experience, it, it's, it is getting better. So we've now got to a stage where people might be including sort of um, swings that wheelchair users can access on the playgrounds or roundabouts and stuff like that. But I think it's important that you can't just stop there. That is not an accessible place. That's an equivalent of saying a building is completely accessible because it's got a ramp out front. Um, you need to be thinking about the, the colours of surfaces, how they contrast with the equipment in the play area. As Sarah touched on, you need to think about how those opportunities are advertised. Are they being advertised in accessible format through council websites in the places where disabled children are accessing already, you know, special education needs schools, those types of environments and mainstream because of the integration agenda at the minute. So just making disabled children aware that some thought has been put into these places. They're an ongoing piece of work. They're uh, wants and desires from the playground will be heard and listened to to make it to improve it um, but for now those considerations are being taken to make it a more accessible place for disabled children. So you've mentioned a couple of um, yeah I guess great assets you've got like the, the canal and ferry and, and the park but how they're not always accessible to everybody so are there some things you can point to I guess coming to you first Sarah around things that do work well what makes the difference? So if we if we talk about Longford Park, believe it or not, I've lived here for 15 years and I only, only discovered Longford Park during lockdown. And that was because I live in an apartment, although I've got gardens around me, being out and having that freedom during lockdown was really important to me. And I think everyone discovered that need for greater mental health during that period of time, especially. But during the good weather, I was like, where can I go? And Longford Park actually you know there's always bits of improvement you can make to anything but it was flat served like pathways there was an accessible toilet available there's the coffee shop of course for ice cream and all the areas were accessible to me just to just go out and have a walk and be in the fresh air and for me it just it just made me think about how much I like the fresh air and just being out don't have to spend money just enjoying the bit of the you know free time um so Longford Park's definitely one of them and I'm very excited about the potential that Stretford especially is being spent a lot of investment actually is going into our area and I'm very excited that hopefully that there's a lot of thought gone into it accessibility and inclusion and that those new spaces that we're expecting are actually going to be really considering the local community in 
all its beauty. And that's one of the things you've really helped facilitate, Ben, in terms of making sure that when there are opportunities like that around kind of redevelopment, that more thought is given um, to differing needs. So any examples of, of what good looks like then? How can we design places, streets that do work for everyone? What's the process? There's sort of two sides to this. So I think short term it is reaching out to local disabled people groups uh, who are interested in this space. I don't think it's good enough just to you know engage with any disabled person who might not be interested in this conversation because the large majority of disabled people are just going about the days. They might be you know coming up against some of this stuff, but they, they might not want to spend the time thinking of solutions around it. And then I think the next stage is... Although disabled people are all different, access needs can be, become quite similar. We, we're saying the same things over and over again in different localities, different disabled people saying the same thing. You know, Sarah's saying smooth pavements. I'm saying reduce the amount of street clutter. That will be repeated over and over again by other wheelchair users and other blind and visually impaired people. So for me, it's, it's not really efficient just to keep having those conversations for the sake of saying we've done consultation. How do we collect all that information, bring it together in a really accessible way to the likes of planners, architects, infrastructure teams, so that we've just got collective standards that we can implement across the board, so that there's not inconsistencies in, it's not a, you know, a postcode lottery, I live here, so the access is really good, it's not a priority here, so it isn't, it's just these are what we work to, because these have all been informed by disabled people, and we've worked together to ensure and endorse them. I think for me, it's also having somebody who champions. So we talk about allies quite a lot, but somebody at every level within those systems, within the you know, the highways department, those sort of departments that actually champion disabled people and are you know the barriers to activity or the barriers to walkways, because it's going to take more than just Ben and I at a local level saying shouting up. Um, it's going to take somebody with the budget with the plan to say, this doesn't work for a lot of our community. So yeah, championing at every level and you don't have to be disabled to champion that. So actually you've got to be seen to be heard. And as much as I agree, you know, sometimes it sucks. It sucks to be disabled. And sometimes you just think, I'm fed up of telling everyone my problem and actually what you need to do to change it. But sometimes it works. So sometimes actually saying, actually, the next time you do it, can you make sure that you think about this for me or think about it for a lot more people and you'll get more customers because I'll shout about it. So are there, if you were to pick a couple of key things that you think need to change, what would you what would you point to, Ben? I think it goes back to what I was saying before. So consultation with with local groups who are interested in this space and want to be part of the conversation. And I think making the consultation process, if it is going to go ahead, as accessible as possible. So having tactile drawings, if there's any new design put in place. Ideally, drawings that have been informed by people before they've they've actually been put together. Making sure the venues that you're holding consultations are accessible. You know, there's, there's ramps, it's good lighting, there's British Sign Language interpretation available if people want it. And then, as I said earlier, all of us trying to get on the same page with what does good look like? Um, because this isn't a, a never-ending journey. This is very much, once we know the best dimensions for a drop curb, that's it. We know the best dimensions for a drop curb. Like it's not, it doesn't go on forever. We don't have to keep redesigning that. But once we know that we need to leave a certain amount of space between a tree and a wall, 
to allow uh, a certain width of wheelchair to get through or to make it as easy as possible for people to navigate. That's it. We can stick to that standard. So there is an end point to this, and it's just people being willing to work through that process. If it's good for a wheelchair user, it's usually good for a mum with a pram or a dad with a pram or, you know, somebody who's visually impaired who needs to get through. You know, somebody with a pram can't walk through if there's a bin in the way. Yeah, and I, th- I think also the how the infrastructure and the way we're designing things supports our changing culture. So, you know, the more accessible places we create, the more people are able to access those places, the more normal and boring people accessing those places becomes. And that's what we want, really. In the end, disabled people just want to be getting around in as boring a way as possible, like everybody else, and just sort of blend in 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 that type of environment, you know. Uh, And I think until the infrastructure allows that to happen, there's always going to be a lack of awareness, there's always going to be a lack of understanding about what it means to be disabled, and it'll always become... Be a, be a shock to dis, to people seeing disabled people getting around in these type of places. So I think it's just important to really acknowledge how infrastructure can support that change in awareness, understanding and culture. A big thanks to Sarah and Ben for joining me online to share their experiences and ideas. So involving people locally, making streets and spaces more accessible, really thinking about everybody and increasing visibility of our differing needs and wishes really do make places better for all of us. And then just think about the benefit we can all get when we see each other, meet each other, be outside, and maybe in Ben's words, in a very boring day-to-day way. Hopefully, we will all get a chance to see that in the future. And as Ben and Sarah mentioned, it's all about a joined-up approach to making this a reality. So earlier in the episode, Elizabeth Lewis, Heritage Development Officer, spoke about Trafford Council's design code. Well, we're back with Elizabeth on the streets of North Trafford to see what the future has in store for the area around the town hall. Hey! Good to see you. So we're here outside Trafford Town Hall on Warwick Road um, and I'm with Elizabeth Lewis from Trafford Council. Do you want to tell us your role? So yes, I'm the Heritage and Urban Design Manager for the Council based in the Planning Department. And for anyone who doesn't know where Trafford Town Hall is, we're just next to Old Trafford Football Ground. And it's match day. So we've got a Manchester United and Leeds game, is that right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. So and it's it's now about four o'clock and the game's at eight o'clock. And it's interesting because there's already a vibe, isn't there? There's already you can see there's people turning up, there's scarves, there's stalls being set up. There's a real sense that already in this place people are getting ready really for the game and that's the dominant feel. And then we've got, in the other direction, we've got the cricket ground. So we're in between these two big sporting assets in Trafford. And we're going to go and have a little look around and we're going to hear a little bit about some of the plans going forward for this site. The Civic Quarter Area Action Plan, named after the area that we're standing in now, outside of Trafford Town Hall and up the road around Old Trafford Cricket Ground, has just been adopted by Trafford Council. According to Elizabeth, it's the first policy plan they've adopted since 2012. It's going to deliver a master plan and regeneration strategy for the area. And Elizabeth is here now to show us what's in store. Talbot Road, have a little look around there and um, and then, yeah, explain some of the things that are coming forward. Right, let's go. We're walking towards the kind of intersection, really, between um, Warwick Road and Talbot Road, um, right opposite the cricket ground and Trafford Town Hall. 
Um, and this is where there's going to be a processional and well-being route um, coming forward in the plan. So that's going to deliver huge improvements to the public realm, um, lots of uh, pedestrian and cycle routes and lots more landscaping. They're going to make it slightly wider. They're going to create a fan zone in front of the cricket ground. Um, and more landscaping as well and trees just to improve the, the overall sort of look and vision of the area. So a processional and well-being route. Immediately I picture literally procession. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, does that, what does that actually mean? Well, they've called it a ceremonial route, so it'll link the cricket ground to Old Trafford. But I think it's just to kind of mark really that route at the moment because when you step off the tram stop at Old Trafford a lot of people don't really know where they are they come to these international sporting venues and it will define that route really mm. I mean what kind of ceremonies and processions will be I don't know in the future <laughs> hopefully lots um, but it will really mark that route up to Old Trafford and so wayfinding and signposting will be massively improved there so and more greening, because I guess when you look around, actually one of the nice things where we stood, which is just on the corner really, the town hall, is there is some quite nice green landscaping just here, isn't there? And, and it does help to hide some of the noise of the road. And we can even hear birds. <laughs> I have to say, I was quite surprised. So, but it's going to be even greener. It is, yeah. So when you look at um, Talbot Road, that will be wider. They will get rid of the kind of the pavement, the curbs. It will be all shared, public realm. And there'll be more landscaping and trees and a kind of wider space right in front of the cricket ground itself. Um, so there are already some trees down Talbot Road. Um, it's, it's not unattractive, um, but it, it will be improved with a more defined cycle route as well, because at the moment you've got these kind of cycle sort of ones that stick up for the route. Um, so visually it doesn't, doesn't look great. It's really busy on Talbot Road. So we've just nipped into the car park outside the cricket club. Yeah, so we're opposite the Sunken Garden at Trafford Town Hall. Um, this is a space that gets really well used, actually, um, on match days, and um, a lot of um, officers in the council use it for lunch, and the college opposite, you get quite often get students coming and, and sitting in there. So it's a good space, and it was refurbished as part of the um, new Town Hall extension quite a few years ago now. But walking along the A56 is not pleasant. There's lots of pollution and noise and there's quite a lot of barriers as well. It's very difficult to cross the road. So there's some improvements that could be made there, I think. What kind of decisions do you make when you're walking to and from work? I mean, I, I tend to take the same route in that I go up Talbot Road and then cross the A56 but the crossings are very difficult and they take a long time so it's quite a short journey a short walk at those crossings when it takes sort of five minutes to cross the road makes quite a big difference really so that's quite a limited way you can do that in terms of different times of of year at the moment it's dark when I leave work so I do tend to think more about how I, how I, where I walk home, and uh, I have to pass Gorse Hill Park. It gets quite dark near there, um, so yeah, it makes me more aware of, of I'm on my own. I've got to make sure I have my phone with me. So yeah, sometimes that's not not ideal. I've I've never experienced anything, but I'm very conscious that because it's such a busy road as well, there are not many people walking, so you can quite often be on your own. Um, and then with the barriers as well, you, you can feel it feels a bit sort of trapped sometimes. If you did need to cross the road suddenly, you can't do that. It's difficult. We continue our mini tour and walk a short distance from the cricket club and across a small road to UA92. It's a relatively new further education college that opened in September 2019. Their building, the one that we're standing outside of, was once home to Kellogg's. 
They had their UK headquarters here for 37 years before moving down the road to Media City in Salford. So there's quite a bit of construction work that's been going on here already and there's some big plans afoot. So do you want to just talk us through those? Yes. Um, So the building on site at the moment at the cricket ground, um, they've got permission, planning permission for um, a new hotel and stand. Um, I think it includes the museum as well, um, which is great. It's an international um, sporting venue and that really um, is really important here for the area because uh, there's a a history of that um, and it's an important aspect of the heritage um, generally in the Civic Quarter. So, And then behind us, um, we've got the former headquarters for Kellogg's, which is now UA92, um, the University Academy. And again, that's sporting related so it's great great to have that in, in such close proximity to the cricket ground um, and behind that we've got a, we've got plans at the moment in for a mixed use um, development so residential business um, and re- retail as well and I think there's going to be a big energy centre as part of that so it's quite quite an interesting sort of vibrant neighbourhood that's coming forward there. You know, you're a woman that, that works and lives locally and are involved in the design, which is brilliant because we know as a workforce, it's quite male dominated, isn't it still? Uh, so what, you know, looking through that lens, what are the things that, that you see and that you'd like to see be different as this area is developed? I mean, we touched upon public realm. I think that's that's a really big issue. Um, and I think in terms of things like lighting um, and landscaping, just make that sort of a more inviting environment um, for everybody really and access is another another issue here um, sort of very conscious about people with mobility issues but also mums push chairs who, who want to come and bring their children down here and it works really well at Salford Keys at the moment there's a sort of a lot of children and, and parents go down and play there it'd be great to have more of that kind of section of the community spend time and, and uh, dwell down here as well in some of these sort of bigger public health realm areas we can create and things like the fan zone uh, make sure it's accessible for everybody really so i've got a very different image in my head that you just created now of this being a space where i can see kids playing and families sitting outside which is not it's probably not the current vibe really so asked we've got i mean we've got some actually some really nice greening around us but it doesn't quite invite that sort of joy of the journey or play on the way at the moment does it it doesn't it doesn't and I think I mean I don't quite know again the detail of how this area would look but I think it's important that we uh, you know we can make sure everyone can access this area not just the fans for the sporting but also I mean lots of children lots of women attend football matches and the cricket grounds so they sh- you know that should be encouraged more definitely well it sounds exciting sounds like a great opportunity it's fab I'm getting a bit cold so I think we might need to walk yes (laughs) let's get carry on leaving UA92 behind us we wandered just three minutes up a pedestrian walkway with the cricket ground on our right to the main tram stop Trafford Park it gets really busy here if there's a sporting event or concert and it's one of the closest tram stops to Manchester United and it's right behind the cricket ground what is incredible is that at the moment people we get people coming from all over the place to visit these sporting venues but they get to the tram stop and they don't know where they are you know they know it's old trafford tram stop but there's no sign that tells you where the we you can see the cricket grounds in front of you but there's no sign to old trafford you know so quite often you get asked where you know where do i go which is just incredible when you think about it that you can arrive here at this international sports venue and there's just no signage that so, you know, with these improvements, we can hopefully people will have a much better sense of where they are and that sense of place as well, which is really important. 
one of the policies in the in the Civic Quartier Action Plan is to embrace and enhance the heritage, which is really hidden in this area. Um, as I mentioned before, there's uh, there's a real history of sporting and cultural buildings and attractions here. It started off with the um, botanical Royal Botanical Gardens in 1831. There's some remnants of that at White City Retail Park. There are some gates there, and so they were the original gates, the botanical gardens. They're listed, and so part of the plan sort of proposes public realm around there and uh, and better access and connectivity to that and then there were various exhibitions um, and then uh, Old Trafford uh, I think that was started in 1910 so you know it's, there's a long history here of sport um, there's a fascinating building just down Talbot Road which is the Old Trafford Bowling Club and that was built in 1877 and it's still going as a bowling club now it's a brilliant building um it's currently we've got a listing application in for that at the moment we're waiting to hear on that so uh, it's fabulous it's still in use as its intended purpose all this time so survived the second world war really any developments that come forward you want to try and enhance the heritage how they do that and interpret them is obviously up to those individual sites um, but something more tangible really that people can understand the long rich diverse history that we have here um, which, and, and really want to see that in built form which would be great right let's keep moving so we loop back on ourselves and walk back to Trafford Town Hall and take a seat in the sunken gardens that we could see from across the road at the cricket ground earlier we're not that far from Talbot Road that was really noisy and just the difference uh, some greening and softening can make to sense of a place. I can see why you'd come out here actually at lunchtime. I can, it, it has an appeal now. <laughs> yeah. It's very hot sometimes as well when it's sunny, believe it or not. But I think because it's sunken as well, it's slightly lower down, that helps. You get, that, get a nice feeling from, from sitting out here, so it's good. So someone knew what they were doing when they designed this. They did, and that was back in like the 1930s or so. Yeah, it's a good example, isn't it, of um, of good design. And there's lots of places to to sit, to just hang out and and be. There's stairs right in front of us, but it does look like there's an accessible route in just over there if you had a buggy or wheelchair user. They did make some changes to it when they did the refurbishment 10 years ago. So they've made, they sort of improved some of the seating and put that ramp in that you've noticed. So we've pointed some of the some of the kind of good stuff and some of the things that we're excited to see change. Anything else that you'd want to kind of, I guess, point to in terms of within sort of the Trafford area that are maybe examples of good design? I think one place that sticks out for me is, is Limelight uh, and the community sort of village hub that they've created there. Um, they made some improvements to the to the street as well, which I think work really well. There's lots of um, landscaping and they kind of created a garden out the front with some seating. And then I think the uses as well. There's a nursery, uh, there's a new church. Well, I would say new, I think it's been there for a few years, but there's St Bride's Church and they put a lot of activities and, and lots of events on there, which I've used as a, as a mum. Um, so it's I think that really stands out in Old Trafford for me is a, is a great bit of, of new design or recent design better. A big thanks to Elizabeth for showing us around the new Civic Quarter Airy Action Plan. Lots of exciting plans afoot. Wow, what a jam-packed conversation. I'm really struck by the need to design for multiple experiences and perspectives and just how much better life can be when we design streets and spaces in a way that really do enable people to freely and actively move around. This podcast is just the start of the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. 
Tell us what good design looks and feels like in your area. Where do you go that feels accessible for all? What do you see that ignites a sense of curiosity about the history of local people and place? What brings you nourishment, joy, well-being or invites you to be active? Do you notice gender differences in the way people you know navigate space and talk about our streets and places? Well, whatever it is, let us know and we'll share your thoughts on future episodes of this podcast. We've got a few ways you can get in touch. You can tell us on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Simply search GM Moving or Greater Sport. Or you can leave us a voicemail. You can find the link in the episode show notes on our GM Moving website. Search Right to the Streets podcast. A big thanks as ever to everyone who's contributed to this episode. We'll be releasing more episodes throughout the next few months. So keep an eye on our social media pages for the next one. Or simply hit follow or subscribe on whatever podcast player you're listening to right now. This means the latest episode will go straight into your library as soon as it's released. This Right to the Streets series of the GM Moving podcast is one element of the Right to the Streets project, led by Greater Sport, Trafford Council, Open Data Manchester and GM Moving Partners. Thanks to Safer Streets funding from the Home Office. This series is a Mike Media production.